It's interesting, isn't it, that that phrase, lukewarm Christian, isn't in the Bible. That's a title uh, that we've made up as a result, really, of an errant interpretation of Revelation 3, 15, and 16. In fact, I've heard those two verses often interpreted as the cold being bad, representing non-believers, the hot being good, representing committed Christians, and the lukewarm representing believers that aren't totally committed to Christ. But that's not at all what that passage is saying. Revelation 3:15 and 16, Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. With that you are either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Okay? This passage was written to the church in the city of Laodicea, which was built on the banks of the Lycus River, which is a, a, an extremely muddy river, and it would dry up in the summertime. So the water was completely undrinkable. And so the city, which was very affluent, had a system of aqueducts built that piped water in from two other nearby cities, about five miles away to the north was a city called Heropolis, which is still there today, which had and still has these wonderful hot springs full of minerals that bubbled up from the ground, which were used therapeutically like a hot tub. They still do today. There are expensive hotels there, and you can go sit in the, in the hot tub with the waters from Heropolis. And so one of the set of aqueducts piped the hot water in from Heropolis, except that by the time the water traveled the five miles to Laodicea, it was no longer hot. It was lukewarm. And at that point, so the, the, the therapeutic benefit of the hot water was lost because, uh, and because it was so rich in minerals, when the people tried to drink it, they became sick. And then about 11 miles away to the southeast was a town called Colossae, which was famous for these cold alpine streams that flowed down into it from a nearby Mount Cadmus, the snow-capped mountain. And that water was wonderful for drinking. And so Laodicea had a set of aqueducts, which you can still see today, built that piped in this very cold water from Colossae, except that after traveling 11 miles through the Turkish heat, the cold water was lukewarm by the time it reached its destination. And so Laodicea at the time became very famous in the region for having lukewarm water, which was useless for drinking and useless for therapeutic purposes. And so in this Revelation passage, Jesus was saying, I wish that you were either hot or cold. Either one of those would have been great options. That would be wonderful and useful. But because you're neither, you're lukewarm, just like your water I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And the word spit in verse 16 is really far too polite because the actual word in the Greek is the word emeo, which means to vomit. So Jesus is literally saying here, I will vomit you out of my mouth, just like your water makes people vomit when they try to drink it. And of course, this is not a passage that we like to wrestle with much anymore because it is in direct tension with the very popular sort of hyper-grace movement that has become fairly prevalent in the American evangelical landscape these days, but we'd better wrestle with it. With honesty and integrity, if we're to truly understand what it means to be an authentic Christian. Okay, and that is the subject matter for our message today as we continue working our way through the book of Acts in our sermon series, The Acts of the Apostles, with today's message entitled Authentic. And we'll be picking up our main text right where we left off a couple of weeks ago from our last message in Acts chapter 19. And we won't completely finish chapter 19 today, but we'll get most of the way through it. So we'll be starting today on verse 11 in chapter 19. And just before we read that, 
We're going to do a bit of a review. Uh, we're going to look at a map together, okay? After the last sermon, uh, my brother, Chris, a- approached me and he said, you know, we've been working our way through the book of Acts on Sundays here and talking about all of these different places in the ancient world. And it occurred to me that it would really be nice to know how the places in these stories relate to the cities in that same part of the world today. And that seemed like a really good suggestion to me. So we're going to look at a map here and just very quickly uh, show you some of the places that Paul went to on his first two missionary journeys, which we've just finished up those two journeys. And then from here on out, as we continue to discuss these different locations, we'll put the map back up in the coming weeks and show you where those places are today so you can see exactly where he's traveling, okay? So if you're happy with this idea, you can thank my brother. And if you're not happy about it, you can blame my brother. All right? Either way, that is entirely up to you. It's his fault. Okay, so let's look at the map for a moment. Um, in Paul's first missionary journey, which covered about 1,400 to 1,500 miles, he traveled to Syrian Antioch, which is right here. Um, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. That's the, the city called Antakya today. So that city's still there, but it's called Antakya in southern Turkey. So he also went to Seleucia, which is right south there in Syria, which is still Syria today. And he went to Salamis and Paphos here on the island of Cyprus. And if you know Dave and Kathy Wallen, our friends from Cyprus that come here, they're coming back in May or June, excuse me. Um, they live on the island of Cyprus. In fact, they live right there underneath the U, right on the coast. Dave, Dave sits in his swimming pool and he looks out over that ocean. <laughs> it's a beautiful place. But they live right underneath that U. And uh, Cyprus today is divided in half. The northern half is controlled by the Turks and the southern half is controlled by the Greeks. And so they live in the Turkish half up there. Okay? And then uh, Paul also went to Perga, Antioch of Pisidia, uh, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Pamphylia, Italia, and then eventually on to Jerusalem in chapter 15. But all those mentioned, with the exception of Jerusalem, of course, are in modern-day Turkey. So all this brown is modern-day Turkey. It's Asia Minor today. Okay? And so there's Iconium, there's Derby, there's Lystra, Pisidia, Pamphylia, Perga, uh, Colossia, which we'll get to, Laodicea, Heropolis, right? These are all of these places uh, that we just talked about. He was all over here uh, in Turkey. Again, all this is is Turkey today. And then his second missionary journey, which covered about 2,800 to 3,000 miles, which we finished up two weeks ago, covered some of those same locations, but it also includes Cilicia in southeastern Turkey over here. Um, He went to Troas, which is at the opposite end up here in uh, western Turkey. And uh, he went to Samothrace, Neapolis, Philippi, Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, uh, Sencre, all these are in Greece. So you see Corinth there, Sencre, um, Athens, Berea, Thessalonica, Amphipolis, Philippi, Neapolis, Samothrace. The the border today for Greece kind of runs along here, and all this south is Greece. Okay, Macedonia is up in here today, but you can see that's where he was. He's in modern day Greece. And then back in Ephesus at the end of last week and today, uh, he's in Ephesus where we're studying. And Ephesus is right there, okay, on the on the west, almost on the coast of Turkey. So when it talks about him being in Asia, it's Asia Minor today. It's Turkey, uh, those places. And then Caesarea in modern day Israel. So of course you have Jerusalem down here. This is Israel. There's Jerusalem. There's Caesarea. So you you think about that. That's a big chunk of world right there. And, and Paul, between boats and on foot, 
covered that whole area in just his first two missionary journeys. Pretty amazing considering what it took just to get to those places, let alone what he went through when he got there. Okay? That was really quick. Um, But at least it gives you some frame of reference when we talk about Paul's travels. And we'll continue to use that map as we work our way through, again, the rest of the sermon series. All right? And we have some smaller maps that show his actual routes. And we'll try and use those as well. So let's turn to Acts chapter 19 then. And we'll pick up our story on verse 11 and talk about what it means to be an authentic Christian. And just a bit of backstory here. Paul has been evangelizing unbelievers and discipling believers in Ephesus now for over two years. Uh, And at the close of our last message in verses 9 and 10, we saw Paul teaching in the hall or the school of Tyrannus, as many of the people in that city would take a break from their work in the middle of the day or in the heat of the day, and they would go to these great lecture halls to learn and to discuss and debate uh, different topics of the day and religion and politics and so on. And Paul's having tremendous success with his ministry there, as we saw at the end of the last passage, and we'll see again here in the beginning of our text this morning. Okay, so let's read together chapter 19, starting at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits were cast out of them. So a couple points to highlight in these verses. First of all, God was obviously performing some really exceptional miracles through Paul during his time in Ephesus. And as we see both in these verses here and also in verse 20, the result of all that God was doing through Paul, including his teaching and witnessing and discipling and the miracles, it had great effect on the people of Ephesus, not only naturally as people were being healed from physical diseases, but also spiritually. People were being delivered from evil spirits. And most notably, verse 20 says that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily, which is truly the greatest miracle of all. All right, But we have a tendency to overlook uh, the miraculous spread of the gospel for the sake of the more visibly sensational miracles of healing and deliverance, when it really should be the other way around. The majority of the miracles performed publicly in the Bible were performed as a sign to unbelievers. In other words, The ultimate point of the miracle was not to simply make someone physically healthy, although that was certainly part of it. Jesus Christ didn't come and do all that he did on the earth just so that we could enjoy physical health. The primary intent of those miracles that we see in the Bible was to testify to the power and love and compassion of God so that unbelievers would believe. The visibly sensational miracles were performed for the sake of the greater miracle, which is the transformation and salvation of the human soul through the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The the visibly fantastic miracles served the purposes of the gospel. It's not the other way around. But sometimes, particularly in Pentecostal traditions, we've been guilty of focusing more on signs and wonders than we have been on the advancement of the gospel. And so it's really important that we keep our focus in balance when it comes to the miraculous and to the purpose of those miracles, which leads us to the second part of this discussion on these two verses. And that is, as we've been working our way through the book of Acts, we've talked about the difference between Scripture that is descriptive and that is that which is prescriptive. And the importance of determining which category a given passage that we're studying falls into. And so I just want to point out that These two verses in our text are describing miraculous events that happened with Paul and the people of Ephesus. They're not a prescription. 
for how we're to pray for the sick and those plagued by evil spirits. Now, that's not to say that God is limited to working in this way only in the first century. Not at all. God can perform any miracle in any way that He chooses to whenever He wants to. But the point is, there are prescriptive passages in the Bible that tell us how to pray for the sick. James 5.14 is a great example of that. We do that here often where Jesus' brother instructs the believers to call for the elders, the pastors of the church, to anoint them with oil and pray for the sick. This passage in Acts 19 however, is describing the powerful way that God chose to work through Paul. And we should, we should understand it that way. Verse 11 says that the miracles that God was doing by the hands of Paul were extraordinary. They were extraordinary. They were something out of the ordinary. We read about miracles all throughout Scripture, but Luke makes sure to point out here that these miracles were exceptional even as miracles go. This is a description of something amazing that God was doing through Paul for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. It was not a prescription for us to follow when we pray for the sick. And yet there are quite a few in ministry that I've personally experienced over the years who will pray over a piece of cloth and then send that in the mail to a sick person or they'll put oil on a piece of cloth and send it to someone who is struggling with something, finances or in some other way. And, and look, I'm not trying to mock anyone here, okay? And I'm not discounting that. If God tells you to do that, you should do that. God can still work in that way, absolutely. I'm simply saying uh, it's not a prescription. I absolutely believe in the gifts of the Spirit and their relevance for us today. We pray for the sick as we're instructed to in Scripture. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is just as powerful and active today as He was in the first century. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Okay, I'm simply trying to caution all of us to be careful not to, to place the balance of our focus on working miracles above the advancement of the gospel. And not to assume that everything that happened in Scripture also is a prescription for us to follow, because it's not. There's a danger in trying to make descriptive passages prescriptions for people's lives, and that doing so takes the focus off of the gospel, and it puts it onto some kind of formula, right, that we can repeat, which ultimately will not only invalidate our ministry, but it screams to the rest of the world that is watching to see if we're living what we say we believe. It screams to them that we're not authentic. Right? We communicate to the world that we don't authentically live the way that the Bible says that we're supposed to when we're out pushing miracles first before the gospel, before the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what was happening in Ephesus as we read and continue in our story. Okay, Let's keep going at verse 13. It says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them. That's not good. Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered the, all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, I guess it would have, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Here we go. This is a perfect example of what we're talking about. A group of people with no real understanding of what God was doing in Ephesus, but they're witnessing an authentic move of the Holy Spirit in their city, so they try to capitalize on that by turning what God is doing into a formula for their own success, for their own purposes. 
At best, this is a caricature of the true work of the Holy Spirit. And at worst, it's heresy to try and turn the name of Jesus into some kind of magical incantation. And either way, it's completely inauthentic. And it leads us to the first point in our outline, which is authentic believers stay focused on the gospel. At the end of the day, all of our effort in ministry, the focus of every relationship and the motivation for how we live our lives should all point to Jesus Christ. And if it doesn't, we may need to evaluate whether or not we're authentically following him. All right? And I'm not talking about being perfect. We all make mistakes. We all make bad decisions at times in our lives. We don't get everything right. But an authentic follower of Christ will even take those mistakes in his or her life, and ultimately use them to point people back to Jesus Christ. These people in verse 13 were itinerant Jewish exorcists. We have records of extensive ancient ceremonies and these spoken formulas that Jewish people in the first century used to try and free themselves from evil spirits. And they probably weren't very effective because in Luke 4.36, Luke says, the people were amazed that Jesus was able to cast out evil spirits with authority and power. Well, they probably wouldn't have been so amazed if they were used to seeing the local Jewish exorcist do the same thing with any degree of success, right? And likewise, here in Ephesus, we see the Jewish exorcists here trying to adopt Paul's methods for casting out evil spirits, which they wouldn't have bothered to do if their own methods worked, okay? But what they failed to recognize was not only was the name of Jesus powerful and important in ministry, but it, it had to be used in conjunction with an authentic faith in Christ, had they understood that and been committed to following Jesus Christ instead of their own agenda, uh, their primary concern would have certainly been pointing others to the gospel before performing miracles. Okay, And so what happens when these Jewish exorcists attempt to turn the authentic work of the gospel into a formula for their own gain? There's a, a bit of a reverse exorcism that takes place. Instead of the exorcist driving out a demon... The demon drives out the exorcist. Okay, and so the principle here, or at least one of the principles that we can learn from this, is that authentic believers stay focused on the gospel above everything else. So when you're counseling someone uh, or giving advice, when you're meeting with someone to pray for them, when you're leading a Bible study, anytime you're engaged in any kind of ministry, really, remember to stay focused on the gospel. Keep what it is you're doing uh, about Jesus Christ first above everything else. And really, uh, that should translate into every area of our lives, okay? Let's keep reading at verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So magical incantations in the first century in this part of the world were, were revered really highly throughout the Greco-Roman world at that time. And there were entire books devoted to those incantations. And they were sold at very high prices. And people would collect these books. And so here these people are accepting the gospel message and they're bringing their books out into public and burning them. And the description of pieces of silver, by the way, was referring to the Greek drachma, uh, which represented a, a, about a day's wage for a laborer. So just to put it into perspective for today, at $15 an hour or $120 a day, 
by today's standards, the 50,000 drachmas worth of books being burned would have equaled $6 million in today's currency. $6 million worth of books. That is a serious expression of commitment to the Word of God by burning $6 million worth of books that were contrary to it. Okay? Point number two is being authentic isn't always popular. Being authentic isn't always popular. Uh, it's not about doing what's popular. It's about doing what's right. In fact, sometimes being authentic is antithetical, if I can use that word, to being popular. In other words, authenticity and popularity are often in direct opposition to one another. And sometimes we have to be willing to swim against the current of pop culture in order to maintain an authentic witness to that same culture. These early believers were so convicted about following Christ, both publicly and privately, that they were confessing their past sins and destroying everything in their lives that stood opposed to the gospel. And I'm sure that wasn't the popular thing to do, but it was the right thing to do. How many of you experienced something like that in your life? When I was in Alaska, we were up there and pastoring the church. And I was in the church office one night, and it was about midnight, a little bit later even, and working on my sermon. And I was supposed to be the only one in the building. And so I was in my office, and the light was on, and the hallway light that connected the offices was on, but all the other lights in the building were out. It's a huge building. It's like a maze inside. And at one point, I heard some voices, and I thought, well, maybe that's the cleaning crew. They would come in. It was a family that cleaned the church, and sometimes they would come in really late at night. So I stood up and walked out the door of my office and turned my head down the hallway and I said, hello, is anyone there? And I see an arm come around the corner and flip the lights off in the hallway and said, run. And they take off running and I can hear multiple people. And just instinctively, I started chasing them through the church. So I run down the hallway and through the foyer and through the fellowship hall and they're going down the back stairwell. And you remember the doors, Chris and Jeannie remember, there's big exterior metal doors that go outside with glass. And I heard them hit the doors. And so by the time I got to the doors, I stopped and looked out and in the snow, there were footprints everywhere. And I said, okay, so it's probably some kids screwing around and they, they've left. So I turned around and went back uh, to my office and started working again. And a few minutes later, I could hear voices again. And I thought, this is unbelievable. So I called Mary Beth. We lived next door in the parsonage. And I said, can you bring my revolver over here? Because something's going on that shouldn't be going on in the church. And so she did. And she handed me the gun. And I went back inside. And I started walking through the building. And I'm working my way downstairs. And about the time I get downstairs, I can hear multiple people talking and it's pitch black and it was probably the Holy Spirit but I heard a voice at that moment that said this is probably not the smartest thing you've ever done in your life and so I backed away and I thought yeah I don't know what I'm about to get into here and I sure hate to kill some people if <laughs> if they're innocent so I called the police and this city police officer shows up and he's standing he comes into the foyer he doesn't there's no urgency about him and I'm telling him what happened. And we're kind of having this conversation. And it's all laid back. And I'm thinking, man, this guy's kind of calm about the whole situation. And at one point, as I'm recanting this story, he interrupted. He said, now tell me again when you said they left the building. And I said, I didn't say they left the building. And he said, what do you mean? I said, they didn't leave. He said, well, where are they? I said, they're here. He said, where? I said, they're downstairs. And he said, right now? And I said, yes. And he grabbed his radio and he called for backup like lickety split. And there were cops 
everywhere. They descended on that building. There were state troopers and canine units, and they all come rushing in. And the guy comes in with his dog. If you've ever watched Alaska State Troopers, he's the canine unit that's on that show. He actually went to our church, and he's standing there with his big German shepherd, and he's calling out this big booming voice, and he's explaining that I'm getting ready to release this police dog, and this is your last chance to surrender. The dog will bite. Your life is in danger. Surrender now. Give up. Nothing. Nobody comes. So he releases the dog, and it takes off right down the path where I chased these people. And all the cops take off running. And I said, hey, what do you want me to do? And one of them said, just stand there. So I'm standing there in the foyer of the church by myself, and they disappear, and all the cops are gone. And I'm standing there with a gun in my hand in the dark, waiting. And this church, the basement, was like a maze, and there were three or four stairwells that came up out of the basement into the, the, where I was. And, of course, the people pick the one stairwell where there's no cops to make their escape. And so here they come up out of the basement running right at me, three people toward the door. And I said, stop. And they did, fortunately, because I didn't want to shoot somebody. And all the cops came running out and they, they arrest them. And there we are. There's this scene and they're interrogating them and we're sitting there. And it turns out it's a, it's a married couple and their son. They had already broken into several churches in Fairbanks that evening. They loaded up their pickup truck, and they realized they weren't going to be able to make it all the way back. They lived 100 miles away in the bush in a dry cabin. No plumbing, no electricity. He had no job. They were destitute. They had brought everything they'd stolen from the other two churches into our church and laid it out on the floor because it would freeze in their pickup truck at night and be no good, 50 below zero. And they laid out sleeping bags, and they were going to spend the night in our church, get up the next morning, probably clean out our church, and then head on their way. And so when we went with the police officers to, to inspect what they had brought in, it was blankets and clothes and food. They didn't take any electronics. They didn't take a microphone, a guitar. They could have stolen tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment, and it was all staples for them to survive on. And I began to pray and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because the cops wanted me to press charges. And so I said, can we call the other churches and find out what they want us to do with this stuff? But I'm not going to press charges. And, and the story of the Good Samaritan came actually came to my mind and I'm thinking about this man who helped this person who was down and out and he took him to a hotel and he bound his wounds and he paid for them to take care of him right and so in Fairbanks there's a homeless shelter that is actually literally much nicer than all but one of the hotels in that city it's a wonderful place I've been there many times they take you in they give you a private room they feed you three meals a day it's a really nice place and so I said here's what we're going to do I'm going to leave all their stuff here and I'll check with the other churches, and I'm going to take them to the homeless shelter. And you have to pay to stay at that homeless shelter. So you have to be sponsored by a family or a church. So we paid to put them up in this place. I said, I'm going to come back in the morning and pick you up at 9 o'clock. And whatever you're allowed to keep, we're going to load up in your truck and send you on your way. And so I called the churches, and they said, you know what, they can keep it. That's what it's there for anyway, although they shouldn't have taken it the way they did. So we put them up in the homeless shelter, went back the next morning, brought them back to church, loaded everything into their truck emptied our pantry out and gave them everything we had. Filled up their truck with gas, witnessed to them for a long time, prayed a prayer of salvation with them and sent them home. So here's the point of all this. The, the local newspaper heard about it, read the police report or whatever they do, and they came and interviewed me and took pictures and they put it on their internet website and in the print in the paper. And then a national syndicated radio program heard about it 
And so they, and it was near Christmas time, and they thought it would make a nice story. So they called me and interviewed me. And so all of a sudden, this thing has gone out all over the country. And other web, news website agencies are picking it up. So for a few days, it was like all over the place on the Internet. And I was sitting there in my office reading the comments. You know when you read an article, and they, you can comment on the Internet underneath that? And people had commented. And I'm reading dozens of comments where people are ripping me and the church to pieces because we didn't keep them at the church and take care of them better and feed them and let them stay there and work with this family. And they're just ripping the church. And as a matter of fact, one of the people who commented who was defending the church said, I tell you what you should do. All of you guys that are upset with the pastor in the church that they didn't do enough, why don't you just post your home address right here in these comments? Because I'm sure the church would be more than happy to take this family and bring them to your home and drop them off and you can care for them. And interestingly enough, there were no more comments after that. But the point is this. At the end of the day, when it was all said and done, what I did was not popular with anybody. Nobody was happy. But I, I held then, and I still do today, that I was following the direction of the Holy Spirit at the time. Right? The cops wanted them to go to jail. The people wanted me to have them move in with my family, I guess. I was so determined to follow through with what I felt like God was telling me to do, that course of action, even though it wasn't the popular choice, it was the authentic thing to do. When, when you were convicted by the Holy Spirit, that's what you do. Likewise, the Apostle Paul followed the guidance of the Holy Spirit everywhere that he went, even when what he was called to do wasn't popular, because sometimes authenticity and popularity don't see eye to eye. Unless we're tempted to believe that this move of God in Ephesus was actually becoming uh, a fad to come burn your books because everybody's doing it, something that gripped the majority of the residents uh, in Ephesus, we'll see that that's not at all the case. As we keep reading, uh, what happens really underscores the fact that what Paul was living and teaching there was not popular at all among the masses. So let's keep going in verse 21. Now after these events, this is the mass book burning, it says, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So Paul sends Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia in Achaia, which would have included the churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Corinth, which again were in modern-day Greece. And this is when Paul sends the letter, by the way, known as 1 Corinthians, to that church. This is when that, that letter went out. He actually had written at least one other letter before 1 Corinthians to the Corinthians, which we don't have a copy of, but we know he did because he references that letter in 1 Corinthians 5.9. But this first canonized or, or biblical letter to the Corinthians was delivered to them on this trip by Timothy and Erastus. Okay? And Erastus was from Corinth, so this was a home going for him. And so Paul sends them ahead of him while he stays a while longer in Ephesus. Let's keep reading at verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. 
There's a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia uh, and the world worship God. Or worship, excuse me. The name Artemis in the ancient Greek is the, the name Diana in English. Okay, And the people in Ephesus loved her. Diana represented big business for them. In fact, their entire way of life revolved around the worship of her and the effect that that had on the, their economy. The temple of Diana or Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. And the grandeur of this temple was known all over the world at the time as being an amazing, wonderful work of men in in praise and in worship to this false god. John Calvin once wrote that the heart of every human being is an idol factory. Nowhere more than in Ephesus was this truly dark corner of the human heart celebrated in complete devotion to Diana or Artemis. And Paul, or more specifically the message of the gospel, was threatening their entire way of life. That was the accusation against him, which was actually true, because the gospel does threaten our entire way of living before we become followers of Christ. It's supposed to. Everything is supposed to change once we begin following Jesus Christ. And this was the very thing that the Ephesians feared. They feared change for their way of life, and they had good reason to fear, because authentic believers are changed people. And this is the final point of our outline today. Authentic believers are changed people. Once we encounter and respond favorably to the gospel of Jesus Christ, once we submit our lives to Him and He places His Spirit inside of us, we change. In verses 18 through 20, masses of lost people who responded to the message of the gospel began confessing their sins and publicly burned $6 million worth of books because those books no longer held any truth for them. They were changed people. Their hearts no longer belonged to Diana or any other false god. They belonged to Jesus Christ. They began following the way and they were forever changed. In verse 26, Demetrius says that Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. People were being changed by the gospel and the power of the Spirit of Christ living inside of them. And they were turning away from their entire way of life, their routines and their former ways of thinking, the ways that they made money and the way that they worshipped and on and on. They were changed people. Authentic believers are changed people. Remember, Jesus said, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you're lukewarm... And neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. In other words, Jesus says, I can see by your works, by what you do, how you live your life, that you have not been changed by the gospel, even though you claim to be. You're lukewarm, just like all of the other unbelievers. And and he said that to the church in Laodicea, to religious people. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking about inauthentic religious people. We read this a week or two ago. He warns his followers to beware of them. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. That's another way of saying by their works, by what they do. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits, by their works. Authentic believers are those who were once lukewarm, but they've been changed. And their works, what they do, how they live their lives, is proof that they're changed. They produce good fruit, as Jesus puts it. It's a a good exercise, spiritually speaking, for us to ask ourselves from time to time, what, what kind of fruit am I producing? If we were to stop what we're doing right now and just take some time and everybody do, to examine the works of Pastor Rob, what would we find? What kind of fruit is being produced from my life? Is there evidence of a changed life or not? If you take time for that kind of self-evaluation, sometimes you may not like what you see. I, I certainly haven't always liked what I've seen in my own life at times, but, but that's the point, isn't it? Am I being authentic or not? It's a good question to ask ourselves. It's a, it's a question I ask myself often, and it helps me to make course corrections along the way be, because we all get off course from time to time. And if we're not actively following Jesus Christ at times in our lives, even though we continue to profess Christ, our witness can become inauthentic and really ineffective. So being an authentic believer, it means that we've changed. We're different from the rest of the world. And to be sure, once you become an authentic follower of Jesus Christ, it not only changes you, but it will affect everyone else around you. And that's what we see happening here in our story. And we'll finish our text up starting at verse 28. Let's read it together. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were his friends, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. And now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours. They stood there and yelled this out. This was a complete mess. Verse 29 says, The city was filled with confusion. And what precipitated the citywide riot? Verse 23 describes it, no little disturbance concerning the way. In this context, the way is referring to Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul was spreading throughout the region. But no matter how severe the resistance was to his message, Paul never relented from spreading the gospel. In fact, he says as much in Acts chapter 20, which we'll see next week, but I'll just read this bit. Verses 18 to 21, he reminds the Ephesian elders, the pastors of the church there, he says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. But how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul never shrunk back from the gospel. Okay, Being an authentic believer and follower of Christ means staying focused on the gospel, 
just as Paul was, even when it isn't popular. And in the process, your life will be radically changed. And at, at times, that will also stir up the waters in your life, in your relationships, in, in how you're perceived by others, in how you're treated by others. Paul called the gospel a stumbling block. Peter and Paul both, quoting Isaiah, said it was a rock of offense. And so it stands to reason that when you ascribe your life to it, there will be ramifications associated with those convictions that you hold and, and the way that you live your life according to those convictions. And by the way, that's when following Jesus Christ becomes very real, very fast, when it begins to cost you something. It may cost you your popularity. It may cost you some friendships. It may cost you some of the things that you hold dear in your life, even material things. For some, it costs them their very lives. We see that in other parts of the world going on right now. We're called to leave our former lives behind and follow him. Luke 14.33, Jesus told his followers, Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Without a doubt, authentically following Jesus Christ is always going to cost you something. And so often this is where the cold and the hot, both of which are good, become lukewarm, ineffective, and inauthentic when it begins to cost us something tangible like our popularity with others. And it's easy to cave to that pressure. I've done it many times in my life and fall right back in line with the crowd, becoming neither hot nor cold. And that, as we discussed in the beginning of this message, is a very dangerous place to live, according to Jesus himself. Okay? At the end of the day, if we're not authentic as believers, as the church, then we might as well pack up and go home. Because the world isn't looking for the church, to the church, for the latest and greatest cultural experience, believe it or not. We as church leaders have in many cases convinced ourselves that we have to be that. But those convictions are largely motivated by an unhealthy desire for popularity on our part. That's a fact. The world isn't looking to the church for the latest culturally cool or popular fad. They can find that in a myriad of other places. When the world looks to the church, it's looking for answers to life's questions. It's looking for truth in the midst of a lot of opinions about faith and God and eternity. It's looking for compassion and love and shelter from a culture that rejects the first signs of vulnerability. The world is looking for something authentic. And if they can't find it here, they will find some version of it somewhere else. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 17, Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And he describes for them the life of an authentic believer. I love this passage of scripture. He says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who's sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. He's, he's referring to these inauthentic religious people. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak Christ that is the definition of an authentic believer. And I say, let's be the most authentic expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can possibly be. 
And sure, we'll work hard to be culturally relevant, of course. We don't want the delivery of our message to be so culturally antiquated that it distracts people from hearing the truth. But let's keep our focus on Jesus Christ and His gospel message above everything else because that is what the world wants and needs to see from us. That is how the church will continue to grow and reach the lost. With Jesus always at the center of our lives and our church as we live out that gospel in front of the world with humility and authenticity. Okay? Let's pray. Jesus.